being a banker for 21 years almost. That's okay. It's, it's going to fuel you. Um, it's still, I think, fueling me to this day. Somebody does a little bit more, should be waiting a long time. So people are just going to have to roll up their sleeves. Try to make sense of it because there's so much information coming in and you don't know what's, what's relevant and what's not. The corporate world, uh, for four years as a CEO, I'm not interested in having this small probability of losing a whole lot of money. You need to be surrounded by other smart people. Got me through the door because it's a pretty small group. And it's fine, 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 Hello everyone, this is your host, Maura Maya. Welcome to another episode of the Finance Podcast, where I explore the professional journey of individuals who have successfully built careers in the financial industry. This episode is particularly interesting as we will be talking about COVID-19 and its effect on markets and how this will all play out. My guest this week is Charles Hadid. Mr. Hadid is a managing director for Credit Suisse in the global consumer sector, focusing on the food and beverage industry. Before joining Credit Suisse, Mr. Hadid started his career with Citi in their investment banking division. So please enjoy my conversation with Charles Hadid. Hi, Mr. Hadid. Thank you for being on the platform here with us today. It is an absolute pleasure to have you. Morning. Thank you for having me, Maura. Great. So I want to get right into it. And before we get into understanding your day-to-day role as managing director for Credit Suisse, I would like to discuss your story. How does it all start? Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, it's a very good question. And, and like most stories, it's n- never a straight line. So I, I grew up in Montreal, born, born and raised in Montreal. Uh, my parents were accountants, so I had always understood, you know, balance sheet and income statements you know, kind of growing up. Uh, I was good in math and physics uh, in school, and I decided to study mechanical engineering at McGill because it, it fascinated me. Um, after one year at, at being at McGill studying mechanical engineering, I just happened to walk by serendipitously um, a, uh, a, an investment bank recruiting forum uh, at the Brockman building at the time, so now, now this hotel. Uh, and I was pe- peeking my head in with my little backpack and jeans and a t-shirt and everyone was, you know, dressed appropriately and I was completely inappropriately dressed for, for this event. But I kind of stayed in the far back of the room. I was, I was a U1 student at the time. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Uh, and it kind of opened my world to kind of what investment banking and Wall Street was all about. And then as a result, I just started reading books and then going to the career center and then, uh, and then doing a lot of research. And, and I, here I am, you know, 20 years later. Fantastic. So before we get into your day-to-day, I want to talk about um, how did you get your foot through the door? You know, how did you break into IB? Uh, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, no stone unturned was my approach. Uh, I was a mechanical engineering student. I had decided to do a minor in management because I enjoyed management. And at one point in time, I said, should I switch out of engineering into management? I said, no. Let me, let me finish what I'm doing, but I'm going to recruit and network as best I can through my network to understand what investment banking is all about. Uh, and I just really just sent cold emails. But this is 20, you know, I graduated McGill in 01. Uh, so I sent cold emails. I called some individuals, met some people, and I'll never forget this. I had, you know, a few interviews lined up in New York, even informational interviews, not even formal interviews. And I had, you know, a student that had no money. I took the overnight bus from Montreal to New York, stayed at the Howard Johnson for like $100 a night, a night, took a shower, did the meeting, did my informational interviews, not real interviews, and then took the overnight bus back, back to Montreal. So the back-to-back 
you know, overnight buses just to spend the day in New York and to have these meetings. Um, so it's really about leaving no stone unturned. It's really grit uh, is really what gets you there. You know, what, what we always say when we interview individuals uh, in our bank is the, the hardest part of the job is getting the job. The job is, is just, it's just math, it's arithmetic. It's not, you know, nuclear physics. Um, and so the hardest part is just getting the job. Fantastic. So in line with that train of thought, I want to talk about what are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered uh, throughout your career and how did you go about overcoming them? Sure. I'd say that there were a few challenges uh, in my career. I'd say the first challenge is that um, I didn't study finance. So I didn't know what EBITDA was until six months into my job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I, but I was, you know, hardworking and ambitious and I understood, you know, finance and modeling. And so how I really overcome that is, again, just through osmosis. The, the beauty of investment banking is it's really an apprenticeship job. Um, it's important. These degrees are nice and they're important and they help understand, you know, who can, who will do well in the field. But the, the job is really an apprenticeship job. As an analyst, you learn from your associate. As an associate, you learn from your VP. As a VP, you learn from your managing director. And I'd even say as an analyst, you learn from the managing director. You see how your team around you interacts with clients, how they price deals, how they give advice to clients. Um, so it's really an apprenticeship job. So the hardest thing in the beginning was, I don't have a finance degree. This is all overwhelming. But I just worked really hard and I, and I absorbed as much as I could. And then six months into it, you know, I started started all piecing together. So that was one, the hardest part was certainly the um, you know, coming up to speed on finance. And then the second aspect was really, um, of course, like, you know, the, the work-life balance as a junior investment banking analyst, I'm not going to say uh, it's pretty, it's very challenging and very difficult. And especially being from Montreal where my family, all my, my, my parents, my brother, my sister, they all live in Montreal. And here I am in New York City, you know, living alone effectively, but I had some roommates and friends. So you have to balance your own life and find some work-life balance. Uh, and it's taking a much, much more important role today uh, within investment banks. And we do today, we have some protected weekends in order to give a full, the team the opportunity to really to really have some work-life balance. But I say the second most important was striking that balance. And you never know how to strike that balance. And it's, it's, an, evolving, it's an evolving concept. So I do want to break the script here a little bit because this brings me to a very important question that I had for later on. But in terms of that work-life balance, what is the best advice you can give to students to manage their personal lives while working in IB? Because you have a particularly interesting history. You have worked in IB for over 16 years at both the junior and senior levels. How do you balance the rigorous workload and your personal life? Um, what is the single best piece of advice you can give uh, to students as they try to navigate their careers? No, of course. And it's, and it's almost 20 years in, in IB. Um, so this is what I tell people. You have to take the opportunities as they come to balance, to have a, to have a balanced life. So if you decide to work in IB, you, you're not going to be able to commit to the Monday night 7 p.m. basketball league that you did when you were at McGill. Or you're not going to be able to commit to the Thursday, 8 a.m. yoga class every Thursday religiously. You're, you don't really have a lot of control over your schedule. But as soon as you're at 9, 9 p.m. and you have nothing to do, leave the office. Don't stay around for FaceTime. Go have a late dinner with some friends. 
go to the gym, get an early night's sleep, leave the office, or really take it as it comes. The hardest part about balancing and having work-life balance in IB is that you don't have, really have a lot of control over your schedule. So when the opportunities come, seize those opportunities. And at the same time, it's also very important to have, you know, to have time with family and protected weekends, right? Um, look, Thanksgiving is a big holiday in America. So those your three or four days that you'll pretty much be, be off. Then there's, of course, the December holidays. And then there's August. So between those breaks, find an opportunity to really get away. And then during the week, as soon as they come, take them. Don't, don't go above and beyond. Fantastic. So going a little bit back to your experience, what does a day in IB look like? Uh, in my role today or in my role earlier on? Let's do a role pre-pandemic and a role uh, current pandemic. Sure. Um, so pre-pandemic, so it's a good, so pre-pandemic, what does my day entail? Um, let's start with, you know, my, well, my week entails typically being on the road two or three days a week. It's kind of, is, is my job. My job is to be out there meeting clients, seeing clients as often as I possibly can. And there's nothing that beats face-to-face. Obviously, um, in a pandemic environment, that is, uh, we'll, we'll talk about how, how that's evolved in a pandemic environment and how that's going to, I think, uh, evolve in a little bit. But pre-pandemic, I'm on the road two or three times a week. Um, my typical day is, is meeting and seeing CFOs, treasurers, CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs of businesses and giving them advice on how to uh, grow their business, raise capital, either from the private markets, from the debt markets, from the equity markets, or giving them advice on buying businesses or, and or selling businesses. I usually start my, my mornings between 6 or 6.30 in the morning, go through my emails. My overnight emails from Asia, Europe is the first thing I do, which is probably a bad habit, but, but we all do it. Um, I would you know, go through the Wall Street Journal in the morning. I'd have a, a coffee and spend time with my kids from 7.30 to 8 o'clock in the morning, put them on the bus at 8, and then I'd take the train at 8 and be in the office sitting down by, by 9 a.m. So from 6 to 6.30, I've done my, my work emails. From 6.30 to 7 o'clock, I've done my Wall Street Journal reading. From 7 to 7.30, I'm getting dressed for the work day. And then from 7.30 to 8, my phone's in my, my room. I don't have my phone for 30 minutes. And it's getting helping my kids get, get ready for the bus. And they're on the bus at 8, and then I'm in the office at 9. Um, in a day that I'm not traveling, I'll, I'll typically be in the office probably until 6 or 7 p.m., so which means I get home between 7 and 8 p.m. in time to catch like a few bedtime books. And then dinner with my wife, and then back to my back to my emails at 10 p.m. until 11, 11:30, give or take. And then in the middle of the day, it's you know meeting with clients, phone calls with clients, usually lunch. I'll try to do a mentor coffee with one of the junior teams as well when I'm in the office. When I'm not in the office, uh, who knows? My calendar is completely up in the air. It depends on the flights. It depends if there's no delays. It depends on times of my meetings, and I'm really available for for my uh, for my clients. Sometimes I wake up as early as 4 a.m. to catch a 6 a.m. shuttle to Boston, which is painful. And sometimes I get home at 11 p.m. from the flight in Chicago because it's delayed two hours because of weather. Or sometimes I take a red-eye flight from L.A. back to New York and I get home at 7 a.m., but then I'll work from home that day. <laughs> <laughs> and so how has that changed uh, during the pandemic, doing everything remotely? So during the pandemic, we are all working remote. Uh, we are all on Zoom. I'd say we are probably at our desks, sitting down in our home offices between 8 and 8.30. It's a little, a little earlier than, than before. Um, and we're probably at our desks until 6, 7 p.m. or so, and then kind of you know, break for dinner. And then maybe we'll go back to our desks for another, another hour if, if we need it. Um, 
the most important thing during the pandemic, what I found is to block one hour of you know Charlie time or 45 minutes of my time. And I'll try to jump on the Peloton. I'll try to go for a walk outside. I'll try to just to get some fresh air because to be in your office for 12 hours a day on Zoom, it just, just is not healthy. But the benefit of Zoom is that in one day, I do a meeting with a client in LA, in Chicago, and in London, all in the same day, whereas before that, that would have never happened. So what we're finding is the pace of activity and the pace of dialogue with our clients is highest that it's ever, ever been. I used to fly to LA for a one hour meeting and fly back. I don't know if I want to do that anymore. <laughs> so I do want to rip up the script here a little bit. Sorry for interrupting you, but do you see oh. that changing in the long run? Do you see yourself, do you think as the industry gets used to the Zoom that this business travel will come back to the levels that we saw pre-pandemic? So it depends, right? It really, really depends. Nothing beats face-to-face -face discussions and face-to-face -face meetings. Um, and there's a few schools of thoughts and a few perspectives. So one school of thought is that as soon as my competitors, my, you know, the, the Charlie Hadid at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs gets on a plane to go visit a client, the Charlie Hadid at Credit Suisse is going to get on a plane and go visit a client <laughs> because I, I don't want to lose that competitive edge. So that's kind of philosophy number one. Philosophy number two is with your closer clients that you develop, you know, relationships with over time. I don't need to fly to LA for a one hour meeting. I can do that over Zoom and that's great. So long as I sustain the relationship and do commit to, to, to going to see the client in person. That's kind of philosophy number, number two. I think, and then philosophy number three is, well, we're gonna to go to Zoom 50% of the time and we're not gonna see clients in person. I think there's going to be a, um, a reduction in business travel, but I think nothing beats face-to-face. -face, and I think it would all depend on, on the client relationship. If I'm trying to break into a new client relationship, I'm going to be there in person as often as I can possibly be there. So I don't want to give numbers, but I do think there's going to be a reduction in corporate travel in the magnitude of 10 to 20% is just my, my guesstimate. Fantastic. So talking about uh, online relationships, I want to deviate a little bit. Okay, that was not <laughs> the right wording, but building relationships online. Um, when you are looking to hire a, an analyst or associate, how can they connect with you online? That is my first question. And adding to that question, I want to ask, once the intern gets that internship, how can they connect with the team in an online environment to potentially get that full-time offer? Right. So the second, the second one is harder than the first one, right? I think uh, and, and the second one has a corollary to the question, which is how can they connect with the team to, to feel part of the team, right? To, to connect to the team to get the online offer is all about you know capabilities, work, ethic, work capabilities. Uh, and, and look, when we give a summer internship role, it's yours to lose is really kind of how we think about it. Like, unless you, you, you don't do well, you won't get the job, but it's really kind of yours, yours to lose. But the hardest part that we're finding is summer interns starting off from home, right? And and the whole beauty of, the, of what we call the bullpen is that you're next to, your colleague on the right, your next to your colleague on the left. One's been there for a year, one's been there for three years. And you can ask a question about Excel. You can ask a question about PowerPoint. You can ask a question about some software or Bloomberg or how to look up you know, some data and facts that your MD is asking you to look up. To do that from home, you know, I, it's, it's really hard. And I, I don't know how, how they're doing, to be completely honest. We try to check in as often as we can. I know, I've heard anecdotally, there's a lot of Zoom discussions where the, the Excel model will show up and they'll share the screen. 
so they can work through the model together, but that takes up more time, right? So, so it's definitely difficult. I know a lot of banks are trying to get interns back into the office this summer. I'm hearing it'll be you know, maybe a hybrid model or start virtually and then maybe towards the end of the summer, be back in. So that's kind of question, question two. You know, question one uh, with terms of recruiting, look, I think everyone is in the same boat, right? So I think it's just as you present yourself in person, present yourself on camera is, is what I would tell individuals. The one individual that really impressed me the most when I was recruiting was an individual who had a, a virtual background, had his, his name on the top right of the background. Um, so I, I knew exactly who I was speaking with. I think he was standing up. He had a suit and tie on. He has positive energy. And it makes a difference when you're standing up because you have a little bit more energy as opposed to when you're sitting down. And I was like, wow, this person is just tremendous energy and tremendous optimism. And I want this person to be on my team. So how you present yourself in person is how you would present yourself on camera, is what I would say. Sticking with that line of thought, um, just deviating, deviating pardon a little bit again, when you're looking to hire an analyst or associate, I know that at the managing director level, you're very involved with the hiring process. What qualities and skills do you look for uh, for someone joining your team? Um, to mostly soft skills at that, at that level. I think that the first question is, do you understand finance? Do you want to be in finance? Why do you want to be in finance? That's table sticks. That's eight minutes of the, of the interview, right? Just explain to me that you know what you're doing and not because you want to do it because your friends are doing it, but you know what you're doing. And then it's really, what drives you? Why do you want to do this? It's a big commitment. It's two years as a commitment. What, what, what motivates you? And what kind of attitude do you have? What kind of personality do you have? The, the teammates that we do best on our team is those who are intellectually curious, have the intellectual capability to do the work, which as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it's not nuclear science, it's really arithmetic math, uh, but who are driven. And the difference between one analyst being ranked top bucket or another analyst being ranked middle bucket, I see it year in and year out when we do reviews, is just drive and ambition. Fantastic. So thank you for sharing that with us. I want to go into market questions and then we'll close off the conversation uh, going back to guidance questions for students. So given the environment that we find ourselves in, what happens to M&A in an environment like this? It depends on the industry, right? It really depends on the industry. Uh, I work in the consumer goods industry and for the most part, uh, the consumer good industry have been, have been a beneficiary of COVID. Think of you know, your cleaning supplies companies, think of your food manufacturers, they've been a beneficiary of COVID. So as a result of them being a beneficiary of COVID, um, their, their sales are up, they have more cash flow, their balance sheets are stronger. We all know that COVID is not gonna last forever, we hope it'll end soon. And then the growth rate that they've experienced in the last year or two is not going to last forever. So they're seeking now, you know, acquisitions and targets to continue to fuel the future growth of the business or buying brands that uh, they think will are, are fast growing brands in, in the industry that consumer product is. So that's kind of on, on the, those are the beneficiaries, cash flow windfall, stronger balance sheets, looking at M&A opportunistically, aggressively, optimistically. The flip side is you have, especially like in March or April, you, you know, specifically in the food service industry, which is seeing, you know, basically a shutdown it's kind of the uh, the strong will survive, right? And M&A there is a de defensive tool. Oh my gosh, my cash flows are done by 50%. Oh my gosh, I have this debt balance. 
how am I going to service my debt? When, when, when is the world going back to normal? Will it go back to normal? I'm very unclear. Maybe I should get together with company A or company B, maybe two, two competitors should get together, scale diversity strength in order to, you know, to combat. So that's the defensive nature of M&A. And we're seeing both happen uh, in this environment today. So it's been a pretty, pretty active environment. Similar question, perhaps a little different. How has the banking and the global consumer sector been affected overall by uh, the pandemic outside of an M&A scope? The banking and the global consumer sector. Look, I think... A banking in global consumer sector. Bank, oh, banking in global consumer. Got it. Um, how has the banking in global consumer been affected? It, it continue, look, I think what we do is we really try to nurture our best relationships. So it, I think the difference is banks who have strong relationships have continued to nurture those relationships as best as they can in the pandemic and through Zoom by, creating, by, by offering creative ideas. And banking in the pandemic in the sector, if you don't, if you're trying to tap into new relationships, has just been more difficult. And that that's really kind of been the 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 puts and takes of this pandemic for investment banking in general. Easier to protect your existing relationships, harder to penetrate new relationships. More from a market uh, point of view, where do you see the market going for this particular industry as we go forward? Uh, what is your outlook um, in the next six to twelve months? Uh, look, I think, look, I think the uh, the market is, um, you know, the, the people are feeling generally good. Um, you know, the market's at pretty much an all time high. Um, you know, you can argue that valuations are, are expensive or not. They're just there's an all time high, um, and it's been an opportune time for companies and issuers to either issue equity or issue debt. Um, so I think capital markets activity will continue to be active and continue to be busy and continue to be robust. Um, and I think from an M&A perspective in the next six to 12 months, as I said, there'll continue to be a fair amount of offensive M&A and defensive M&A uh, trying to take advantage of the situation. Perfect. So moving away from market question and ending our uh, starting part and beginning our last segment, uh, more of a guidance question for individuals. In terms of your career, to what skill and or value would you attribute most of your success? Determination. Just de determined to win, determined to, to get ahead, determined to solve the problem, determined to be the best that I can be. Fantastic. And what uh, what are the most important things you think individuals should focus on as they try to build successful careers in banking, in finance in general? I think the first question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to do this? That's a very hard question because you don't know what this is. <laughs> And, I, and as I mentioned before, I didn't know what EBITDA was for six months into my job. So I couldn't tell you if this is what I wanted to do, but it seemed interesting. But the first, the first aspect is research, do as much research as you possibly can. And look, you're 20, 21, 22, and no one's asking you to make a career decision at that stage, and although it seems daunting. But ask yourself, is this an industry I want to dip my toes in? And it's a two-year commitment or a one-year commitment. And if it doesn't work out, it's, it's fine. But I think the more research you can do on what the industry is, what it entails, and look at yourself and say, this is what I want to do, I think the better served you'll be and the better you'll express and communicate to anyone you're meeting with and recruiters why you want to do what you're doing. And uh, along the same lines, uh, perhaps I think we touched upon this a little bit. What advice can you give students on how to continue to grow and develop their networks 
while connecting remotely? Yeah, the hardest part in, in networking is, you know, when you when it's done remotely, because, um, you know, when I meet individuals face to face, it's very different than when I get a cold email or a cold LinkedIn message. Um, I think that the easiest way to connect with folks remotely is to find points of connectivity, right? To send a cold email or a cold LinkedIn message to some random individual at Goldman Sachs, there's a low, low probability. But you're like, oh, this person went to McGill or this person studied at Concordia or this person is Canadian and I'm Canadian or this is a friend of a cousin of a friend. Just try to be thoughtful and strategic in your network and where and put your time it's going to yield the maximum results. A little bit differently, um, I have a few final questions. I think we touched upon this uh, a little bit, but what advice can you give to individuals trying to break in? What is the single best piece of advice for someone trying to break into IB? What would you tell them? Uh, what steps should they take? What are the requirements for getting into the industry? Um, You know, I think, you know, as I mentioned before, it's really leaving no stone unturned is really one of the most important, one of the most important aspects to it. Um, but also what I would also say is, you know, realize that the careers are never straight lines, right? And you want to work at a certain firm, but, you know, um, a different firm is giving you an opportunity, more of a boutique firm. It's a small firm. It's okay. Dip your toes. Take that opportunity. And from there, leverage, leverage those skills that you have into furthering your career, right? So if you want to get into it, don't be so picky in the beginning, right? Like just get the opportunity that you can get. And then from there, build, build on that. That's the best advice I would give. Fantastic. So my two final questions are, the first is what single best piece of advice can you give someone in their 20s um, that you wish you would have known or that you wish somebody would have told you early on in your career? Take a bet on yourself because the risk is, is low and the reward is high. When you're, when you're 40, taking a bet on yourself, the risk is high. But when you're 20, the risk is low and the reward is high. Take a bet on yourself. Fantastic. So uh, are there any resources, perhaps books, to which you would direct someone because it had some sort of impact on you? Um, so I, so obviously vault.com. And when I was, when I was a student, I'm, I don't know if there's a website there, but I read all the vault books. So obviously spent time on vault, but what I've done a lot is as well as I find fascinating is all there's been a lot of books and literature written on, you know, the advent of some of these investment banks, you know, there's a book on Goldman Sachs written, there's a book on Stard, Last of the Tycoons, Goldman Sachs, Culture of Success, there's a book on JP Morgan, there's a book on Credit Suisse, like read these books. And understand how the banking industry came to be and how it evolved. And if you're interested, that tells you something. If you can't get through two pages and falling asleep, that also tells you something. So, <laughs> so that's what I would suggest. And then, of course, you know, read the Wall Street Journal and the Global Mail because even though you don't, you want, I didn't understand it in the beginning, to be frank. But the more you read it over time, the more you'll understand it. Fantastic. Are there any, is there anything else you'd like to suggest or mention as we wrap up any final advice for our audience? Look, I would say, um, well, first of all, thank you very much more for having me on this podcast. It was a lot of and experiences together. Um, I would say, you know, wherever you are, whatever school you go to, whatever you're studying, um, if this is a field that's of interest to you, you know, take it by the horns, right? 
take the bull by the horns and, and try to try to make it happen. You don't need to have gone to a top Ivy League school in the States. You don't need to have gone to a top school in Canada necessarily. Uh, but if this is something you want to do, you know, manage your career and take the bull by the horns and nothing's ever too late. So thank you again, more. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on the platform. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you this morning. Thank you, Maura. It was great to be here. That was my conversation with Charles Hadid. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Truly wonderful insight found in this episode. Remember that this podcast is powered by the McGill Investment Club. As always, stay safe and stay tuned. There's always more coming up.